Well, about three years ago, my dad and I had the opportunity to take my two boys to their first Cubs game. They were about four years old and seven years old at the time, and they had never been to a professional baseball game before. And over the years, my parents had taken my sister and I to many a Cubs game, and so my dad and I had this nostalgic outing one afternoon, and we were taking the boys to their first game. We sat through all the traffic and drove downtown and parked the car, and the street vendors were, of course, selling hats and T-shirts and all those sorts of things, so we bought the boys baseball hats, and my dad bought them those little tiny wooden bats you can get when you go to the stadium. And we walked into Wrigley Field and got giant root beers and giant popcorns for the boys and marched everyone down to what were fantastic seats. My dad had managed to get fourth row first baseline seats. And we sat there, and they had their hats on, and my dad and I sort of had this moment where we looked at each other and winked and got a little choked up, like, isn't this great? The tradition continues. We're taking our boys, our kids to Wrigley. And about five minutes into sitting there, while we're watching the players on the field warm up, my oldest son stands up and looks around and looks at me and says, is this all there is? (laughs) I said, what do you mean, buddy? He says, well, this, is this all we're going to do? And I said, you're at Wrigley Field. You're in the f- fourth row. And I pointed out, I says, these are the players. These are the guys you see on TV. We're right here. And he said, this looks like it's going to be boring. <laughs> now, about maybe halfway through the third inning, I think we had packed it up and left already because they just couldn't sit through a Cubs game. And I wonder sometimes for some of us, when we come here, come to church, come to a place in our faith, when we're in the stadium, we've got all the bells and whistles, we've got all the beauty around us, we have Bibles, we have everything we need to find our way in faith. And how many of us reach a point on our faith journey where we look around and go, well, is this all there is? I thought it was going to be more exciting than this. I, I joined the church. I went to this small group. I, I signed up for the mission project. I did what you told me to do. Is this, is this all there is? And maybe for some of us, this happens a day or two after we've come to faith. Maybe some of us, this is 40 or 50 years into the life of faith, where we find ourselves sort of standing with our back against the wall, looking around going, well, now what? I'm a little bit bored. I don't know if this is all there is. Our text for today is a glimpse at a man named Simon, who's a Pharisee, which just simply means he's a religious leader, a cultural elite, an established figure of the day, who stands very much in the back of the room when Jesus And a woman, who most scholars suggest was a prostitute, engage in a moment of deep faith together. And he finds himself standing against the wall, judging, sniveling a little bit, and never really fully understanding all there is to know about faith in Jesus. Kenneth Bailey, a fantastic commentator and scholar who researched this text, said that this specific passage in Scripture is defined by everything that does not happen. 
all of the should-haves and the, the would-haves that Simon had before him. And what we miss when we read it in our contemporary, with our contemporary eyes are all of the cultural graces that were overlooked at the time that make an astounding statement about who Simon was. If you notice right away, the first verse we, we read, Jesus shows up at Simon's house, and we're told he goes straight to the table to recline at the table. And when we read that, we think, well, big deal. He just walked in the door, and he went and sat down at dinner. He had been invited to a dinner party. But the fact that a bunch of little moments were skipped in that verse speaks volumes about what Simon believed about Jesus. In the ancient Near East, if you were hosting a party at your home, you would have had sort of the interior courts of your home, which was where Simon would have gathered the guests of the day. Jesus was a prominent figure at this time. He had amassed quite a following, and you invited luminaries and dignitaries over for dinner. It was a way that you could showcase the people who you knew. What they also had at their houses, though, were outer courts where the general public could gather, almost in a sort of tabloid-chasing sort of way. Who's coming to dinner at Simon's house? And the public would gather, and they would sort of see the who's who of the guests and where they were seated, where you sat, made a big difference. And then, inevitably, especially the teachers and the rabbis that would come, they would probably stand up during the dinner or after the meal, and, and they would teach a little bit. So the public would gather to hear the teachings. So this woman is in the outer courts, and she's one of the public folks who've come. She probably knows quite a bit about Jesus already. Otherwise, why come? Especially if you were known not by name, but by the scandal you brought to the community. A woman who was known for her sin is what the text tells us. And Simon welcomes Jesus into his house and refuses him the courtesies that were expected for every guest who arrived at a house, especially the traveling rabbi you were having over for dinner. Simon would have typically opened the door and greeted the guest with a kiss on the cheek. And then that person would go sit on a small stool, getting ready to join their space at a U-shaped table. And when they would sit at the stool, the servants of the house would come and simply wash their feet. Right? You couldn't pull up in an air-conditioned SUV like most of us do if we're going somewhere for a meal. And so they would sit with their dusty feet, and someone would wash their feet. And then, after that, they would be anointed with a small drop of oil, sometimes rose oil or incense, as one drop on their head. And that made them ready for dinner. And then they would recline. The way meals were served, they sort of leaned on the table with one arm, and the tables were low, and they, they had their feet stretched out. And grace would be said, and the meal would be served. Simon refuses to do any of this for Jesus. The Pharisees weren't exactly thrilled with the messages that Jesus was teaching, so Simon likely invited him over to show him a thing or two. Jesus is 30 years old at the time, pretty young, probably seen as this hotshot upstart, and Simon's going to set him straight. He's going to try to embarrass him in front of the other guests. He's going to show him who's who. He's not going to give him his proper due. And this woman in the courtyard sees this. 
She probably didn't plan on making a scene when she showed up, but she is overcome at the fact that this courtesy has been overlooked. Everyone watching would have been horrified that everyone else arriving was receiving this, this normal treatment in Jesus had been dismissed. And so she is overcome with emotion and she races into the inner part of the home where the meal is being served and she throws herself at Jesus' feet and just starts crying. She's overcome with emotion. And the only thing she has to wipe his feet and all the tears that are falling is her hair. And the fact that her hair is long and worn down in this text means very little to us. But if you were a Jewish woman in good favor in the community, you never, ever went out in public with your hair down. Your hair down is the way prostitutes wore their hair. So the fact that her hair is down says so much about her. And then she has this little alabaster jar around her neck. Most Jewish women at the time had perfume that they would wear in a vial and a necklace. And she cracks open her necklace and puts the oil on him that they had not put upon him. She greets him and prepares him for dinner. Simon did not do any of this. Now, Simon had obviously wanted to mess with Jesus just a little bit anyway. And when this woman from the community rushes forward, you can almost see Simon in the back of the the room, right? Who I couldn't even have planned for this. This is even better than my snubbing him the courtesies. He's got the town prostitute crying all over his feet. What's he going to do now? This ought to be good. And Simon, you read, uh, we read later in the text, Simon mentions if he knew what kind of woman she was, he would not let this be happening. This proves he's not really a prophet. Simon is giddy that he's gotten Jesus. And in this almost eerie sort of way, right, Jesus reads his mind. And you can just see Jesus receiving the courtesies from this woman, maybe not even looking up, Simon. I have a story for you. You can see Simon, yes, Jesus, tell me your story. And then Simon goes on to unpack a story about forgiveness and grace. She, who had erred in so many ways and who had been such a tragedy in her community, was forgiven so abundantly, while Simon, who pretty much thought he had nothing really to worry about, clearly didn't understand the man who he was hosting for dinner. In the Jewish community, for this woman, it would have been very difficult for her to make her life right, to re-engage the community. You had to do three things in the Jewish community to be forgiven. You had to confess your sin. You had to make a commitment not to do that sin again. And you had to make compensation for your sin. So if you had a debt or something you had stolen, you could make it right by bringing it back. If you had said something negative about another member in the community, you could go and make that right. How does a prostitute make it right? They were consistently on the outskirts and in the zone of unforgiveness in their community. And for this man, Jesus, to forgive her meant everything to her. And again, the text is marked by what did not happen. Jesus did not shoo her away. He did not mock her. He did not remind her that she was not 
able to fully engage the community, he let her worship at his feet. Simon gets bested by Jesus in this story. And we look at him going down in our scriptures as the person who did not do the things that Jesus needed. There's a nonprofit ministry based in Atlanta, Georgia. It's called the Plywood People. It's an organization that employs refugees to make handbags and tote bags and such and sell them so that they can uh, support themselves. And the tagline of this organization, I think, is just great. Their tagline is, we will be known by the problems we solve. I think that's a great line, but it haunts me a little bit because I don't want the reverse to be true. The reverse is also then that we will be known by the problems we don't solve. We will be known, possibly like Simon, for our lack of ability to engage Jesus. For the places where we stand against the wall and go, is this all there is? Oh, this ought to be good. Look at that woman. Look what's happening here. The places where we refuse or just seem unable or tripped up to walk into the room and fully experience the worship and the grace and the forgiveness and the joy of Jesus. What keeps so many of us, myself included, standing against the wall with our arms folded and a little bit sometimes of maybe even a smirk on our face? Well, here we are again. How's this going to play out? What's he going to do now? Why is she here? Why is he here? What keeps us sometimes defined by our inaction instead of our worshipful action? You know, when I look at this narrative, part of me looks at this woman blubbering at the feet of Jesus, and I think, well, that's kind of embarrassing. Like, I don't want to be the blubbering woman at the feet of Jesus. And then part of me looks at the text and says, wow, what it's like to have a moment of worship and understanding of God's grace that brings us sobbing at his feet, unable to do anything but just give everything we have in the moment to Jesus. What keeps us from living free? John eight thirty two says that you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. When we know the truth of who we are and how desperate and miserable we can be, then we are so much more free to fully engage and embrace and enjoy and understand the truth of Jesus forgiving us and bringing us to him. You know, for most of us, there are places in our family lives where grace and forgiveness come in big ways. And most of us, at least this is how I can be, I show the ugliest sides of myself to my family. I can be sweet as pie to some folks, but if my mother calls me on an off day, I'll bite her head off. My children, I love them madly and fiercely, and I try as hard as I can to be a good parent. But the reality is that hour by hour, sometimes minute by minute, (laughs) I am not the parent I always want to be for them. And if you're married, you know that sometimes marriage, oftentimes marriage is a bit of a challenge, right? Maybe our spouses sometimes get the worst of us at the end of the day. I know I'm not the easiest person to be married to. 
can find my husband and ask him for confirmation on that one. (laughs) And, you know, at the end of the day when I go to bed and I think about the way that I've acted toward those I love and that my children still, before I go to bed at night, say, I love you, Mommy, or they still want me to tuck them in, I think the grace of God only is what makes those moments happen. They have grace for me. They forgive me. They look at me and say, well, Mom, you messed up today, but, you know, tomorrow's another day, right? We experience this maybe with our good friends who we've, we've tripped up, or maybe just our coworkers. People forgive us, and we think, wow, live to see another day, right? And that is just a sliver of the abundant grace from heaven that comes through Jesus for us. That is just a sliver of the way Jesus forgave that woman and the offering that he was making to Simon as well. Nowhere in the story do we read, Simon, this grace is not for you. What we read in the story is Simon's refusal to engage the grace. The grace of God is for us all. It is abundant everywhere. Nobel Peace Prize winner Elie Wiesel has a fantastic note about this. He says, the opposite of love is not hate. It is indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness. It is indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy. It is indifference. And the opposite of life is not death. It is indifference. And how much of indifference was Simon showing Jesus? His desire to just stand on the sideline and not jump in and not be engaged. Erwin McManus is a pastor, a famous pastor out in Los Angeles, and he's got a lot of books he's authored in a great congregation of people out that way. And he tells the story in one of his books titled Seizing Your Divine Moment. And McManus is on a vacation in Florida. He's with his wife, and he's with his two children, and he's walking the beach with his 10-year-old son. And he tells the story about, he, about how he and his son are walking along, and what they see is a gentleman who was a double amputee with a set of crutches trying to make his way from his towel to the water. And you can imagine what it would be like to move crutches through the hot Florida sand. And McManus said that he sort of catches a glimpse of the guy and just sort of kind of, you know, pays attention in the other direction and sees out of the corner of his eye this gentleman fall and then try to get back up and then fall again. He's having a hard time getting down to the water. And McManus tells this story in a shame-on-me sort of way. He's embarrassed of himself, but he said he puts his arm around his son and sort of just turns him. They don't want to look too much. They don't want to embarrass the guy by staring at him. And McManus confesses he didn't exactly feel much like getting involved at the moment, so he kind of just walks the other way. He says he and his son take a few more steps, and his son stops and looks at his dad and says, Dad, i got to go help that guy. And turns around and goes racing across the beach to try to pick this guy up. He's a 10-year-old kid, so of course he can't really pick him up. But his movement to act brought two other people from another part of the beach there, and the three of them managed together to get this man to the water. And McManus is just horrified at himself when he tells the story. He said, you know, I had a chance to jump in. I had a chance to act. I had a chance to extend myself, to participate in the kingdom of God. A chance to to share the graces that I'd received, and I just chose not to do it, and my 10-year-old kid did it instead. 
My challenge for us today is to consider where we find ourselves on those sidelines. And maybe we don't walk around like Simon, angry, trying to trip Jesus up. You know, most of us are here today because we, we do love Jesus. We, we want to know more about Jesus. We're not here to catch Jesus in a trap. We're here because we want to try to figure some things out. And maybe our behaviors look a little more like that Wiesel quote. We just get indifferent. We stand in the back sometimes. We get used to the back row or the back wall. J.I. Packer says this very thing. He said, you know, it is repeatedly pointed out in Sunday school and in sermons and in hymns and in worship that we are recipients of God's grace, that we know God's riches at Christ's expense is, is the tagline for grace. And Packer says, and yet despite these facts, there do not seem to be many in our churches who at the end of the day truly believe in grace. He says, to be sure, there have always been some of us who have found the thought of grace so overwhelmingly wonderful they could not get over it. He said, but many of us are just not like this. We pay lip service to the idea of grace, but there we stop. He says, we fail to live into grace because it's simp- we believe that grace is just simply beyond us sometimes. And he says, we become indifferent. He says, the longer we have lived without it, the more surer we are that we really do not need it. But grace, my friends, demands a proper response. Jesus was there at the table, present to the people, and it demanded a response. And while most of us, all of us, are not going home this afternoon to host Jesus for lunch, the physical Jesus for lunch, We all have a responsibility to respond to the fact that he's here with us. He's there in our lives. He's there at our tables in spirit and in presence. It demands that we admit we need it deeply. The more we admit, the more we realize what we've been forgiven. It demands that we consider it. It demands that we act on it. It demands that we become among the first to fix what was missed, to rush in like the woman instead of the last to act. And so my invitation for each of us this week is to consider this text. Go home, reread Luke 7. Google a couple other versions of it if you want to see what different translations of the Bible have to say. And find yourself in the story. Are you Simon in the shadows against the wall? Are you at Wrigley Field going, oh, is this all there is? Are you somewhere in between? Maybe you're the woman and you're just on your feet sobbing, overwhelmed by the goodness that Jesus has done for you. My friends, none of us get far in life. None of us will get off the wall in the back of the room until we can fully say, I am a sinner in need of that grace. And we need to fall at the feet of Jesus and worship and know we have been forgiven and know because of that forgiveness, we live in the fullness and the joy and the light of Christ. John 10.10 says, you will know, or I'm sorry, (laughs) I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That is what Jesus wants for us, this full life, this at his feet, freedom and fullness.
Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you give us freedom, that you have called us to life in fullness with you. And thank you, Lord, that we have been given the opportunity to sit at your feet, that forgiveness is ours, that grace is ours, that we have a choice whether or not we want to stand against the wall and wonder if it applies to us, wonder if we even need it after all, or if we want to rush into the room and fall at the feet of Jesus and give him everything we are and figure out the details later. So Lord, help us to be those people who rush in and sit at the table with Jesus. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.